to the only place where there is real upside for you as a marketer and as a human being is to be doing what nobody else is doing and to be absolutely right. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, so in this episode, you'll be hearing one of our favorite and most actionable talks from past conferences. Here we go. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Peter Weinberg with LinkedIn, who's going to be uh, coming up to join us now. Peter. Hello. First of all, hilarious setup in this room. It's like the Last Supper or something with you guys at these long tables. Who's going to betray me? You know, I don't know. It could be any of you in this room. Enough about The Last Supper, though. My name is Peter Weinberg. I work at LinkedIn. I'm on our brand strategy team, which is actually even more vague than it sounds. Another fun fact about me is that I quit coffee two days ago. Yeah, so I'm either going to collapse from exhaustion or from a splitting headache at some point in the middle of this presentation. So that'll be an exciting thing for you guys to find out. Will it be the headache? Will it be exhaustion? We'll see. But enough about my personal life. Let's talk about 2018 B2B marketing trends. I have a few trends to share with you today. First, I'm just going to give you a little preamble on like what these trends are all about. First of all, they are all contrarian by design. In other words, they're kind of obnoxious. You might disagree with some of them. You might disagree with all of them. Some of them may contradict things that you just heard. For instance, why are we contrarian? Is it just to be obnoxious? No. It's, first of all, for a strategic reason. So there's this wonderful thing called the contrarian matrix pictured here. It's a very big idea in the world of finance. Basically, in any decision you make in your professional or personal life, you can be contrarian or you can be consensus. In other words, you can do what everyone's doing or you can do what nobody's doing. If you're wrong, it doesn't really make a difference if you're contrarian or consensus. In fact, it's particularly awkward to be contrarian and wrong because then everyone hates you and you're all alone. But the fun fact, this is a very fun fact for you, there's actually no advantage to being right and consensus because everyone else is doing the same thing. So the advantage gets competed away, basically. So the only place where there is real upside for you as a marketer and as a human being is to be doing what nobody else is doing and to be absolutely right. That's why all of our ideas are contrarian, because there's at least a 50, 50 chance of some upside for you. It's also a lot less boring, right? If I tell you guys that mobile, social, video, and ABM are trends, you probably know that already. It's not going to be very entertaining for you or for me. And I'm really optimizing for my own personal entertainment here. Uh, finally, they're all things you can do today. So we're not going to talk about like AR and VR and cool shit you might be able to do in 10 years. We're going to talk about things you could do right now, but probably aren't. Okay, great. That's my preamble. Let's get into some of the trends. Trend number one is called Start With Who. We sometimes call it the death of personas when we're trying to be a little edgier. But what is the idea here? The idea here is that you hear a lot about customer centricity, right? Every conference we go to, somebody's talking about how important it is to be customer centric, how we're using marketing to try to be more customer centric. But let me ask you, are marketers actually customer centric? I'd say whatever data you look at, the answer is almost certainly no. Marketers don't care about their customers whatsoever. Here's a deeply depressing statistic for you, which is that only 3% of buyers on the internet think the ads they see have anything to do with them. 
So like the whole promise of digital was that we were going to use these mountains of data to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. None of that is actually happening, right? Digital is not living up to its promise. If you want to see real customer centricity, you look at a company like Netflix. And what Netflix does is essentially treat every user as an individual. So there isn't really like one Netflix. There are actually 160 million discrete Netflixes for every person. Netflixes is the plural of Netflix, by the way. Another fun fact. You're going to get so many fun facts in this presentation. It might actually blow your mind to know how personalized Netflix really is. It certainly blew our minds. So let me give you an example. If you like rom-coms, movies like Serendipity, which is a horrible movie, by the way, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, phenomenal movie, although not sure it's a rom-com. If you like this type of movie, when you scroll over the thumbnail image for Goodwill Hunting, you will see this, a picture of Matt Damon and Minnie Driver making out. It's an iconic Boston movie, by the way. I personalized this thumbnail just for you guys. Just kidding. I didn't do that at all. Oh, sorry. It didn't show. Sorry. Goodwill Hunting, then make out. Okay, great. So let's say instead you like comedies. When you go over the thumbnail image, you'll see this. You'll see Robin Williams. In other words, every aspect of the Netflix experience down to the thumbnail image is personalized based on what you actually watch, right? Even the descriptions of the movies change for each person. So this is what like real customer centricity or radical personalization actually looks like. So let's picture a spectrum in your imagination right now. On one hand, you have companies like Netflix using data to deliver these insanely personalized experiences. On the other side of the spectrum, you have most B2B marketers today, right, who are really still in the stone age when it comes to trying to understand who their customers are and what they actually care about. So what do clients do today when they want to understand their customers? As far as we can tell, this is what most of our clients do. They sit in a room with a bunch of other marketers, and they make up these like imaginary characters, like people they think their customers might be, like, you know, Jimmy from sales, Peter from procurement, these entirely fictitious creations. It's usually based on either no data at all or like some weird third-party data that fell off the back of a truck in an alleyway or something. They come up with these elaborate personas, they put it into a deck, they present it to the head of sales, somebody signs off on it, it gets put into a drawer, and nobody ever looks at it again, basically. This is an entirely time-wasting opportunity that happens every day in corporate America. So the real question is, is it any surprise that 3% of advertising is relevant if this is our baseline starting point of how we try to understand our customers? But this trend has a happy ending, don't worry. It's not a tragic ending. It's a comedy, not a tragedy, which is that this is starting to change. So whereas previously, all these personas are basically either based on no data or third-party data, and they're also these static things that never change, the opposite is starting to happen. You start to see clients building dynamic personas based on first-party data. And a lot of them are doing this using our Insights Pixel. So first of all, let me just preface this by saying this Pixel is entirely free. So before you try to accuse me of trying to sell you something, I just want you to know it costs $0 for you, which is our Insights Pixel. So what does it do? You put it on a landing page, let's say a conversion page, and it will tell you who is actually converting based on the demographics or information in their LinkedIn profile. So your persona might tell you that Oh, it's a VP of sales in the pharmaceutical industry. That's our customer. When you look at the data behind the personas, 
you'll see that's actually not who your customer is at all. It's the IT people in the pharmaceutical industry or something like that, or the software industry, right? So this sort of starts to expose the gap between who your personas say your customers are and who they actually are. And we can also tell you, what do these people actually care about? What are they reading? So on Netflix, you know, if you like rom-coms, on LinkedIn, we can tell you, okay, if they work in IT, they're interested in AI, they're interested in security. These capabilities are actually becoming a lot more granular and better over time. But this is the way to ultimately deliver relevant advertising by rethinking how we attempt to understand our customers. We're not really saying try to be like Netflix. I don't think that's actually a good idea. I think that makes sense in a product context, probably less so in a marketing context. All we're saying is be a little more data-driven and a little more dynamic in understanding who your customers are, and you will actually be more customer-centric. Great. Bionic marketing. So I think the previous presentation was about the importance of working well with humans. I'm going to give you the opposite perspective of how to work better with robots. Most of the internet is robots, by the way. So in many ways, you actually are selling to robots, but that's not a good thing. And that's not what our trend is about. Don't worry. So if you think about the most effective marketing today, it's all about marketing at scale. I hate to get political and I hate to depress many of you in the room, but here's a fun fact. The Trump campaign ran 6 million versions of their ads. The Clinton campaign ran 66,000. Trump says he ran a much better Facebook campaign. Everyone at Facebook apparently agrees with him. So on the one hand, you have people like this running 6 million ads. And on the other hand, you have most of our clients who frankly can't get a single ad live most of the time. Like, we are delighted, delighted if our clients will run four ads at the same time. We're like, you're a genius. Somebody get you guys an award, right? The other campaign, Trump ran six million ads. So how do you actually do this? Well, the only way to do it, as far as we can tell, is to work with magical robots who can mystically scale your creative from one ad to a million ads. And you hear a lot about AI, but we recently figured out how you actually do this. And we thought it was pretty mind-blowing, so we're going to share it with you. But the key thing here is you need creative that is machine-readable, right? So there's a big misunderstanding today of where creativity is in marketing. People think like, oh, not only do our ideas need to be creative, but our format, everything about our ebook and our ads, everything needs to be entirely bespoke and creative. But actually, if you want to scale your creative through AI you need to have the exact opposite. You need to have an incredibly templatized approach to creative so that it's machine readable. Let me give you an example. Let's say you structure your ebook like this. You got some text on the left and you got these two visual rectangles on the right, right? This is what you see as a human. But actually, it's very easy to find a robot who can say, okay, this is just a template. Everything on the left is text. Everything on the right is essentially an ad unit. And what the robots can then do is take your ebook, you feed it to these robots. This is a robot called Stanley that we recently met. Lovely guy, Stanley. You feed Stanley your ebook, and he can automatically create about 12,000 ads in about 10 seconds. But again, all of this starts with having a templatized approach to creative, not like bespoke, custom, every page looks different. It's having a structure so that you can benefit from machine learning and AI that can actually translate your creative into huge quantities of ads. Huge quantities of ads may not sound that sexy or that important, but 
If there is one thing I've actually learned over the past few years, it's that how well your stuff performs is pretty much directly correlated to how many ads you run. That's why we go nuts when our customers run one ad or four ads. Because if you can get a ton of ads into market, what will happen is some of them will perform extremely well. The vast majority of them will be mediocre or below average, but a few of them will be truly exceptional. And when the other robot, the media optimization robot, determines which of those ads are actually the best one, it'll double down on them and you'll get this sort of like hockey stick performance here that we've seen. So that is our little diatribe on the importance of templatized creative to scale ad creation through robots. Great. Okay, trend number three. I think we have four trends, so we're almost done. If you're bored, don't worry. It's over halfway through. This is probably our most obnoxious trend, so I hope you guys like it. It's called You Are What You Signal. We're going to start with a trivia question for all of you. So I have two ads for you here, okay? There's an ad on the left. There's an ad on the right. They're both ads for mobile phones. Now, if I were to ask you, which of these ads do you think is more expensive in terms of both, let's say, its creative design and also the media placement, which one would you guys say, left or right? Right. Okay. This is going well for me. This is going very well for me. Okay, great. Let me ask you a related question. Let's pretend it's an unrelated question, actually. So if I were to ask you, which of these products do you think is a higher quality product? Would you say the one on the left or the one on the right? Right. Ooh, fascinating. Okay, cool. So basically, you guys, first of all, have an intuitive understanding of how much these ads cost, and then you link that in your mind to the quality of the product. And you might think that's because you're a genius and you work in marketing and you think about this stuff all day, but it turns out you're actually not special at all. It turns out every person on the planet Earth can do what you just did, and it's called signaling. Has anyone heard of signaling? So signaling, I would say, is probably the least well-known idea in advertising, but by far the most well-proven idea in advertising. If you look at the amount of research on signaling over the past hundred years, you'll see that nothing we do is as empirically proven as this. So what is this? Well, in a sentence, signaling, another way to put it would be, signaling explains that advertising works because it's expensive. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. So I show you guys an ad right now, like the ads on the previous page. And as marketers, we're all very drawn to the messaging in the ad. We're like, oh, why is this ad effective? Because it's communicating X, Y, and Z about the product benefits. That's why it's so persuasive. It convinces people to buy that product over the other product. It turns out that's actually not how consumers see advertising at all. That's how you see it. It's not how consumers see it. Here's how consumers see advertising. They see a commercial in the, tele- in the uh, Super Bowl. They see a TV commercial in the Super Bowl. And they say, wow, this ad must have cost a ton of money to run. The kind of company that can afford to run that ad must be incredibly successful, and they must really believe in the quality of the product in order to spend that much money against it. So in other words, it's the actual act of advertising that signals to the consumer that you're a healthy company who creates high-quality products, right? And it actually happens regardless of what the message is. So let's turn back to this thing here. So this, this message here. 
This is Apple, spoiler alert, Apple advertising. You'll notice it actually doesn't even really have a message on it. There's no words. The message is, we're Apple. You wouldn't believe how much money we have, right? And you wouldn't, literally. A a trillion dollars, that's how much money Apple has. So Apple is the most valuable company in the world, right? And their entire strategy, if you go talk to people at Apple, their entire strategy is based on signaling. They call it something else. They have some like cool hip name for it, but it's, it's signaling. So Apple will go into the most expensive market in every country in the world. They'll go to Paris and they'll say, hey, what is the most expensive inventory here? And they'll say, oh, it's all this stuff on the Champs-Élysées. And they'll say, okay, sweet. We'll take that for the next 30 years. That's what Apple does. Literally, go into any market in the world, look for the most expensive inventory, guarantee you Apple has it locked up for the next 30 years. And that's because they use advertising to signal what a high-quality product they create, how successful a company they are. Okay, so this is how advertising actually works. Very well understood in traditional media. Now think about what we do all day, right? So basically, right now in digital, it's a game of who can get the cheapest, crappiest inventory on the planet Earth, right? It's like anti-signaling. So if high-quality media signals that you have a good product and a good company, what do you think cheap, crappy inventory signals about your product, right? So right now, a lot of media planners think they're being incredibly clever. They have all this audience data and their DMP, and they're like, okay, we're going to reach these people wherever they are. We don't care if they're on like babaganoush.com or Breitbart or New York Times. It's all the same. It's all the same person. Well, it turns out it's not, again, because where you appear and how expensive it's perceived to be signals something about the quality of your products. Marketers are starting to realize this, right? So a lot of marketers are realizing, okay, maybe this cheap advertising is at best worthless and at worst damaging to our brand, right? So you have brands like Chase who are running on 400,000 sites, supposedly an incredibly efficient strategy. They cut 395,000 of them and had no change whatsoever in sales. Procter & Gamble did the same thing you might have seen, except that they actually had a net lift in sales from cutting 99% of their inventory. So again, you need to start perhaps asking yourself, are your ads reassuringly expensive or are they disturbingly cheap? Final trend for you, media value investing. So in the world of advertising, we borrow a lot of terminology from the world of finance, right? So like some media buyers call themselves digital investment teams, for instance. So this got me and my colleague thinking, okay, if we're going to borrow terminology from the world of finance, why don't we borrow some of their ideas too? Unfortunately, a lot of the smartest people on the planet work in finance, right? So if I were to ask you guys, who is the smartest and best investor of all time? Who would you say? Warren Buffett. Show me Warren Buffett. Great. It's a very successful edition of Family Feud. How has Warren Buffett gotten so rich? As rich as I hope to be sometime soon, hopefully. Hopefully by the time I'm 90, at least, like Warren Buffett. So he's gotten very rich to this idea of value investing, which is basically the idea that he buys things he believes are undervalued by the market, then he buys them and he waits for the market to realize what the actual price should have been, then he sells the company or the stock, he becomes fantastically rich. So you don't buy stocks, you buy audiences, right? That's what we do in the world of media. But the same principle actually applies. There are undervalued assets in the world of media. And we would argue that the most undervalued audience in all of media are junior people in an organization. 
our marketers, our clients right now are like hell-bent on never reaching junior people. They all want CEOs or managers. If you're a specialist or an individual contributor, you're like dead to all of our clients, right? All of the impressions our clients serve, only 24% of them ever go to people like Eric here, a junior person in an IT department. It's a very dumb idea for two reasons. Reason number one is that actually these people are not that useless based on their present revenue potential. So if you actually look at a lot of the research on buying committees, you'll see that, for instance, in tech, 55% of buyers are actually individual contributors. These people might not sign the check, but they meet with the vendors, they put together an initial recommendation, they might be responsible for implementation. They're not nearly as worthless as we all think they are. But here is the more interesting concept is that although they're certainly not useless today, they're even less useless tomorrow. Because here is a mind-blowing insight for all of you. Are you ready? Young people eventually become old people. It's a shocking. We, we, we pulled the data on this because it's such a contrarian idea. We used LinkedIn data to actually show this. So for instance, in IT, Based on our data, it takes about three years for a junior person to become a senior person, a manager who everyone wants to influence, right? So it's, but the career progressions are actually pretty short. It varies by industry, but they're all around three years, almost everywhere in the world. Meanwhile, B2B buying cycles, are those things short or are they long? They're long, right? So by the time somebody's ready to sign the check for your multi-million dollar cloud computing solution, it might be the audiences that you've been deliberately excluding from all of your marketing for the past three years, right? This is not a long-term strategy for success. All we are really saying, all we are really asking of you is to consider broadening your investing horizon to reach not just today's decision makers, but tomorrow's decision makers. As a start, maybe don't just target the C-suite, maybe go down to Managers Plus, or if you want to do what we are actually advocating, I would say remove all seniority targeting whatsoever because it's not a long-term strategy. That's pretty much it, guys. I hope you had a wonderful time. I'll just quickly recap for you what our trends are. We're talking about building dynamic personas, not static personas, not based on third-party data, but based on first-party data. We have a tool that can help you. It's called the LinkedIn Insights Pixel, and it's free. I think I mentioned that, but I'll mention it again. Structure your creative not to be fantastically creative and like mind-blowingly well-designed. Structure it to be machine-readable so that you can run a lot more than one ads. You can run six million ads to get maximum performance. Invest in premium context if you want to signal quality. And finally, reach tomorrow's decision makers to ultimately maximize sales. I'm out of time, but... Great to meet you all. It's a very cozy, personal environment. And good luck at the Last Supper. (laughs) Ever wonder what happens when you turn down $30 million from Mark Cuban? Or when you take a classic brand like Moon Pie and go totally rogue with their social media? Maybe you've pondered what it would be like to build a social movement around getting people to complete grueling, spear-tossing, mud-covered obstacle courses. Our friends over at HubSpot are launching a new season of the Growth Show podcast and answering questions just like those. It's a weekly show that explores the inspiring stories behind how people grow a business, an idea, or a movement. 
You can subscribe to The Growth Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.